Turn with me to John chapter 9, the Gospel of John chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 18 through 23, John chapter 9, verses 18 through 23, and considering the fear of man, John chapter 9, verse 18, give attention to God's holy word. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself." His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and bless your name, asking you to now bless us with your presence in the name of your Son, by your Spirit, through the ordinance of preaching. We pray that you would work in us according to your mighty power, that we might be taught and that we might be warned, that we might be presented perfect in Christ Jesus, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if I haven't ever said this to you before, you're going to hear it again. I love the Commonwealth of Virginia. My fathers are buried here, my grandfathers are buried here, and their grandfathers are buried here. In fact, our family has been in this commonwealth since uh, the days of the French and Indian War. I was recently uh, gratified to find out that we have an ancestor who fought under Washington in the French and Indian War. So suffice it to say, I love this commonwealth. And one of the things I love about this commonwealth, one of many, is the motto of this commonwealth. I hope you know it. It is sic semper tyrannis. It's a Latin phrase. It means thus always to tyrants. And this statement, sic semper tyrannis, is a truly great statement. And every red-blooded American says amen and amen. We should fight against tyranny. We should oppose tyranny. It was John Knox who said that opposition to tyrants is obedience to God. Now, We live in days of tyranny. We have seen tyranny that none of us have experienced before in our lives. Tyranny that was very close to home, tyranny that was just across the lakes in the nation of Canada. But what we have to realize about tyranny is it's not enough simply to be ready to fight tyranny. We need to know how tyranny works. How does tyranny work? operate? What are the tools that tyranny uses, and what is the goal of tyranny? Tyranny, as I have mentioned, is something we have seen in the civil sphere. And at one level, civil tyranny is not much of our concern as the church. But the spirit of tyranny and the tools of tyranny often finds its way into the church. We are Reformed Christians, and as the heirs of the Protestant Reformation, we remember that the the effort that our forefathers put in the days of the Reformation was to oppose tyranny within the church. And what we find in this passage is an example of tyranny within the church and how it functions. And what we learn, uh, particularly in this passage, is that tyranny functions by a spirit of the fear of man. Tyranny operates by a spirit of the fear of man, and it seeks to deny the truth of Christ. 
Tyranny operates by a spirit of the fear of man, and it seeks to deny the truth of Christ. As we look at this passage, we're going to notice three things in this passage. We're going to notice first in verse 18 the context of this little episode. And then within that context, we're going to notice that there's a grave sin that occurs in verses uh, 19 through 21. And then in verses 22 and 23, we're going to see the motivation for that sin. Verse 18 is the context. Verses 19 through 21 is a sin. And verses 22 through 23 is the motivation for that sin. Context, sin, and motivation. And what we're going to see here is that the context of this story is a local church. Notice what happens in verse 18. You remember the broader context of what's going on. This blind man has received a great miracle. Christ has healed his eyesight, and this man was born blind, so he's been blind his entire life. Well, Christ, fulfilling his work as the Messiah, opens this man's eyes through a miraculous display as it says in verse uh, 3, a miraculous display of the work of God. And so in this man's healing, the power and the glory of God are on display for this community that this man lives in. Now, the people of his community had questions about him. They weren't sure what was happening. And so they asked him. He gave testimony to Christ. Now they bring him to the church officers. Verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. The Pharisees begin to question him, and this man gives confession of what happened to him. In verse 17, they ask him again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And this man confesses he is a prophet. And now, verse 18, we move into a more formal phase of this examination. Notice first off, the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and had received his sight. These Jews are officers of a local church. Look what it says down in verse 22. At the end of verse 22 it says, "The Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue." So whoever these Jews might be, they have authority to excommunicate. They have the authority to put somebody out of the local synagogue. That's the context that we have here. These are the Jews that this man is dealing with. Notice also what happens. These Jews don't believe the testimony of Christ. They are in opposition to Christ. Therefore, they oppose his miracle and they begin to deny the miracle. Notice what they're questioning in verse 18. They did not believe that this guy was really blind. This man testifies, I received my sight miraculously. They don't want to accept that Jesus is a prophet, that he is the Christ. And so what they do is, you weren't really born blind. That, that can't be the case. This, this cannot be. Because if it were true... And if it's accepted as true, then they would have to accept that Jesus is the Christ, and they would have to submit to him. This spirit of uh, opposition to Christ is a very familiar spirit throughout the history of the church. One thing that came up in the men's study as we were studying Revelation, we looked at Revelation chapter 17. And in Revelation chapter 17, John goes through a very detailed outline of Roman history at the time that John is writing. This is very similar to what Daniel does in his book. Daniel gives a precise history and timeline of all the kings who would rule over Jerusalem and the temple. This timeline is so precise and so exact, it was given uh, some uh, several hundred years before the events actually happened, that liberal scholars, when they look at the book of Daniel, say, this must have been written after the fact. This, this cannot have been prophesied before it happened. Because, you see, those who are in opposition to Christ are in opposition to his miracles. 
Now, before we go any further, I, I just want to encourage your hearts with this a little bit. This is something we need to be reminded of about our faith. The Christian religion is a supernatural religion. The power that we trust in, the work that God does in our hearts is a heart that it's a power that is beyond the ability of man. Paul mentions it in Colossians chapter 1. According to his working, which works in me mightily. This power is the same power that heals the blind man. It's the same power that predicts all the kings over Jerusalem. It's the same power that gave you the knowledge of the truth and brought you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our religion is a supernatural religion. Never forget it. Never forget that fact. Because as we're going to see later on, if our religion is not supernatural, we will fall under the tyranny of men. We will not be able to stand against the tyrants of this age. So they doubt his blindness, and they... Uh, they go on, and they, they doubted that he was blind until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. Notice what they're doing. They're, they're calling witnesses. This language is the same kind of language you would find in the courtroom. Um, the defense has certain witnesses we would like to call. We call so-and-so to the stand. In church courts, sometimes, we have to call witnesses to verify information when we make judgments. Same thing's going on here. They've called in witnesses to testify to the facts of the case. And so now they call these witnesses in and they ask them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a place of judgment. What do I mean by that? God has given church officers the powers of the keys of the kingdom. And within the church, exercising the keys of the kingdom, officers of the church are called upon to make judgments. We receive accusations of sin. We try to shepherd our people's lives and keep up with them. But sometimes... We have to enter into actual trials to assess evidence, call witnesses, and make judgments. This is a facet of the church that's often forgotten in our day. Many go through life thinking about the church merely as the mystical body of Christ, Colossians chapter 1. We just read about that during the prayer. Or we think about the church merely as the family of God, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that I bow my knee for the sake of the family. Uh, I bow my knee to the Father from whom the entire family is named. But what this passage reminds us of is that the church is not merely a family. It's not merely a mystical body of Christ. It is also a kingdom. It's a kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a place where judges sit and pronounce authoritative governmental judgments. Uh, Turn with me to Matthew 16 just to see this as a good reminder for us of of what's happening in John chapter 9. We have to know the truth before we can discern the error in what these Jews do. Matthew 16, Christ is uh, speaking to Simon Peter And he says in verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys, notice what he calls them, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This text and many others is the foundation of for the church's judging and governing authority as the kingdom of Christ upon earth. And so when church officers examine someone, hopefully according to the scriptures and according to the wisdom of the Spirit, and they say, you are repentant, they use the key, open the gate of the kingdom, and bring them in to the kingdom. This is what we call church membership. They are admitted into the number, and they are brought into the visible church of Christ. 
If it is done according to Christ's will, Christ promises when you're let in on earth, you are let in in heaven. Also, though, if somebody is in sin and they are unrepentant and the pastors have counseled and shepherded this person and they refuse to repent, then the keys are turned to lock them out of the church. And the keys are used to exclude them from the communion of the saints. Because if they are not seeking to repent of their sins, they have no place in the kingdom of holiness. Now, I want to be very careful here. I want you to pay attention to what I just said. If they are not willing to repent, they have no place. I did not say if they have any sins at all. The difference is, are you willing to repent of your sins? All of us come into the kingdom covered in sin. Most of it we're not even aware of. Because God in his mercy does not open our eyes that wide to see all of our sin. But those who are excluded from the kingdom are those who are unrepentant. Those who know that they're in sin, they've been admonished about the sin, and they still choose sin over salvation. Those are the ones that are excluded. This is an authority that Christ has given to his church. Notice finally, it is a real authority. Look at what he says. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Christ has given you the visible church, and he's given the visible church real authority to give you access to heaven or to exclude you from heaven for your good. It is for your good that the church is well governed, because being in the visible church is, as we learned at the Presbytery meeting this weekend, like being on Noah's Ark. Those who are in the Ark will survive the flood. Those who are outside of the Ark, ordinarily, will not survive the flood of God's wrath. So rejoice in the visible church, thank the Lord for the visible church, and know what the visible church is for. It is for the edification of the saints, gathering of the elect, and shepherding them in the truth of Christ. It is not, in John chapter 9, to deny the truth of Christ. The authority of the church is not to be used to prop up the authority of men. That's where we turn to now in John chapter 9. Now, this is in a, a public judicature. This is a court of the local church. They've asked the parents this question, and then the parents answer. And I want you to notice that the parents are lying through their teeth. They're lying to these men through their teeth. Notice what happens. Verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. He is of age. Ask him, he will speak for himself. Now, when we speak about the ninth commandment, we, we know that it's about not lying, but we need to be reminded and aware of that lying is not always lying. Not telling the truth and the whole truth, so help you God, is not always out and out telling falsehoods. It may be, as our larger catechism teaches us, something like this. The larger catechism, 145, talks about the sins of the ninth commandment. The sins of the ninth commandment are things like this. Um, outfacing and overbearing the truth. Um, undue silence in a just cause. Concealing the truth. Forgery. Holding our peace when iniquity calls for reproof perverting the truth to a wrong meaning, using doubtful or equivocal expressions, speaking untruth, slandering, backbiting, reviling, and all different manner of sins that they list. It also lists the duties of the ninth commandment, and the duties of the ninth commandment are this, the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man, the good name of our neighbor as well, of our, as, well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth, listen carefully, and from the heart, 
sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of justice and judgment. So all lying is not lying. Breaking the ninth commandment can also be skirting around the truth, dodging the question. That's what his parents are doing here. Notice how they do that. First off, they begin in verse 20 by overemphasizing irrelevant facts. Notice how they overemphasize irrelevant facts. The point of their question was, was he born blind and how does he now see? That's what they want to know. How did this happen? Notice what his parents emphasize. We know that this is our son and and that he was born blind. So in deceiving these Pharisees, in dodging the question, they do that by overemphasizing irrelevant facts. What would that look like in our life? Well, it might look like this, children. Let's say something happens in your house and... You have sinned against your brother or your brother has sinned against you. And dad comes into the room and says, tell me what happened. And then sometimes children that don't want to be fully honest will say, but he hit me first. That may be a fact. That may be something that did indeed happen, but it's irrelevant to the question that dad asked. You can think of other illustrations of this. You've, you've seen this time and again in uh, political campaigns. Politicians are at a town hall. Politicians are geniuses at this. A direct question is asked, and what does the politician say? How are you going to help us get out of this gas price crisis? And then the politician says, my plan will create 60,000 jobs. That may be a fact. It's an irrelevant fact. That's not the question that was asked. And you see how his parents are doing the same thing here. They're dodging the question. Not only do they dodge the question, they outright lie in this instance. They say, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Now, we know that this is a lie because John will tell us down in verse 22 why they're saying this. So what's implied is that his parents do actually know what's going on. They do know what happened. They know that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, came and put clay on his eyes, told him to go wash and be cleansed, and they're lying about it in this instance. It stands to reason that they know about it because imagine if you're in their shoes. You have a child with an affliction from the womb. And this affliction from the womb is miraculously healed one day. What do you think you'd be talking about for at least most of that day? you would be talking about who did it and how they did it. The Pharisees ask his parents, and they say, we don't know. We, we really don't know. So they're lying in the midst of this church court. And then finally, they dodge the question. They emphasize irrelevant facts. They outright lie to the Pharisees, and then they try to shift responsibility. Look at what happens at the end of verse 21. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. So instead of asking the question that was put to them, instead of submitting to the authority of their officers, now, it's evident, it's going to be even more evident when we get to the end of this passage, these Jews and Pharisees are exercising an unlawful tyranny, yet they are still officers in the church. Christ will say in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, do what they say. What he's saying is that they hold lawful office. You need to respect the office and follow what they're doing. This is the same situation. These men are lawful officers in the church. The parents were obligated to answer these questions. But they don't, and they shift the responsibility. They bring their son up to avoid the question Obviously, this is a sin of lying. Now, we live in an age of lies. We live in an age of tyranny. And this age of tyranny and age of lies, these two things often go hand in hand. 
What you saw uh, in the summer of 2020, for instance, with the racially motivated riots surrounding the death of certain individuals in our country, mostly our country. What has now happened, the truth of those cases has come out. And in almost every single one of those cases, it was an outright lie or the facts were manipulated to make it appear a different way. I don't want to talk so much about that, but I want to talk about the spirit of the age that this induced in people. Some of you probably felt it in yourself. Some of you probably felt it during the COVID lockdowns when masks were being required in every single public setting. I'm not saying it's wrong to wear a mask. If you, in your conscience, felt you needed to wear a mask, I'm not speaking about that medical practice. I am speaking about the spirit of tyranny by which people were made to fear for their livelihoods if they did not comply, if they did not go along with this tyrannical operation. Likewise, you see this here. You see that the parents engage in a lie because they are afraid, which we'll come to in just a second. But they engage in this lie underneath the tyranny of the local church. They are afraid to speak the truth. And this has two effects. One, they break the bonds of natural affection. Natural affection is something we don't, uh, I think, hear a lot about in our society today because we live in a very unnatural age. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verse 28. We'll start in verse 28. Paul is speaking about the sins that arise in a culture that is under God's judgment. And some of these sins that arise in a culture that is under God's judgment are descriptive of our age. Verse 28, Paul says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, He gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, listen carefully, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving. Now that word in verse 31 is astorge in Greek. It's not merely that you're just not a loving person. It means that you're a person who does not abide by natural affections. What would natural affections be? Natural affection would be the affection we have for those that naturally belong to us. Spouse, parents, children, cousins, and going out in broader and broader circles. These are natural affections. It should be natural to us to love our own children. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a very righteous thing. Paul says those who don't do this are under God's judgment. Well, look in John chapter 9. These two are brought before the church court. And they are so driven by this fear, they don't protect their son. Instead of them speaking the truth like they should have, they throw their son under the bus. Well, he's of age. Talk to him. When they had an opportunity to protect him. The second effect, which is even more tragic than this breaking of natural affection, is that they, in effect deny the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this spirit of fear, it it motivates them to tell what might appear to be white lies. What, What might appear to be innocent shifting of the truth, innocent dodging of the question, uh, innocently, as it were, trying to avoid pain for themselves innocently uh, perhaps bringing their son forward. He's of age. He can speak for himself. It might appear innocent, these little white lies, but what these white lies ultimately amount to is denying the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in the next verse, verse 22. His parents said this because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, 
So what did the parents do? They avoided confessing that he was the Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want to exhort you. Strive to be honest in all of your dealings. We only call white lies white lies because we don't see the gravity of lying, of deceiving and dodging and massaging the truth, as it were. The, the, the lies that these parents tell, as it were, are the seeds that will eventually sprout up into the weeds and the poisonous flowers that will crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these lies begin as small, innocent little things, but they are of the same spirit that will ultimately say to the Lord Jesus Christ, be quiet, we want you literally to go to hell. We do not want to hear you anymore. Stop speaking to us. That's what the crucifixion was in reference to the Jews. So these white lies lead up to that. That's ultimately where they end up. You may think I'm exaggerating, but remember what the Lord Jesus says about those who lie. He says that Satan was a murderer and a liar from the beginning, and he is the father of it. This, secondarily, shows us why tyranny is such a great evil. You see, the problem with tyranny is not that it makes things inconvenient for us. Some people present the sentiment I expressed at the beginning of this sermon as if I'm just an apple pie flag-waving American and I want to be able to drive my truck that burns gallons of gas every second. And that's why I oppose tyranny. Some present it that way. The real danger of tyranny, though, is that ultimately, tyranny in D.C., tyranny in Ottawa, tyranny in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, tyranny in this synagogue, all tyranny ultimately rests on denying the Lord Jesus Christ in varying degrees, in varying ways, but it all ultimately comes down to denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about one of the most pervasive tyrannies in our day. That is the tyranny of transgenderism. What happens if you're in a business and somebody comes in and says, my preferred pronouns are now X, Y, and Z? That might be a literal pronoun choice today, I don't know. But they come in and say, I want you to refer to me as X, Y, and Z. And let's say you, knowing that that person is a male, and knowing that it would be a lie to call them by female pronouns, let's say that you say, no, I'm not going to do that. Caitlyn Jenner is a man. Bruce Jenner is his name. What can happen to you? In certain places, you can get fired. In certain jurisdictions, they can arrest you. In certain other jurisdictions, it hasn't gotten this far yet, but they may try to destroy you. Now, that tyranny is a denial of the Lord Jesus Christ as creator. Because in the beginning, he made them male and female. And in denying the male and female distinction, they are denying the work of the creator ultimately. You see how this works? Tyranny is ultimately a denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it needs to be opposed. And that's why we need to see what's going on here and understand what's going on here. Well, we've bled into it a little bit, but let's look at verse 22 now. We've seen the the context. We've seen the sin. Now we see the motivation. And notice that the motivation for this is the fear of man. Look at what happens in verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. A couple of things to notice here. His parents are uh, they're motivated by the spirit of fear. Fear is what drives them to make their decisions. Fear, ultimately, is a fear of the consequences. We don't want to confess that he's the Christ because it's going to hurt. In this context, to be excommunicated from the synagogue meant that you would be ostracized by the whole society. 
you probably couldn't get a job, you would probably have to beg, and even if you did beg, nobody would probably pity you. You know, I had a, a friend one time, he's a really eccentric guy, and he wanted to experience the Amish life. So he went up to an Amish community and wanted to learn how to build stuff the way the Amish build them, how to train horses the way the Amish train horses. So he lives in this Amish community. But one thing he could not get over is that he and his family were not Amish. And if you're not Amish, you cannot integrate into that society. They practice very strict excommunication and very strict what they call shunning. There was one time, it was it's a pretty dangerous situation actually, his two kids, two of his kids, were riding a horse in the community. And uh, they're riding this horse, and the horse bucked, and one of his sons fell off the horse and was unconscious for some time. This young man was sitting there unconsciously, and the Amish folk would not help him because he was not a part of the Amish church. He was cut out from their synagogue. That's a picture of what it would have been like in this situation. So let me say this to you. Fear sometimes has good grounds. Sometimes fear has a legitimate argument to make. If you're excommunicated from this synagogue, it's going to be painful for you, parents of the blind man. It's going to hurt. You're going to suffer if you confess that he is the Christ. Because if they excommunicate you, you may be cut off from all human contact in this society. We need to recognize that sometimes fear has a legitimate argument. The reason it's important to understand that is because we need to understand the only way to combat fear. Keep that in your mind. We're going to come to that presently. Notice also in this uh, verse, in this context, it says the Jews had already agreed if anybody confessed he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. That phrase, put out of the synagogue, is one word in Greek. It's a word that means literally this. It's one word in Greek. This is the first time John uses this word in his gospel. John is the only one that uses this word, to my knowledge, and he uses it in this gospel. Remember that John's gospel is like a legal argument and a legal case against the Jews. But as John's gospel develops, much more than the other gospels, you see the conflict between Jesus and the Jews intensify and become even more costly as the gospel goes on. It started out with them honestly questioning him. Nicodemus, we know you're a man sent from God. Tell me more. And then it moves into vigorous debates, John 5, 6, and 7. How can this man call himself the Son of God? It ends up in John chapter 8 where the debates get to such a point the Jews are ready to stone Jesus. Now, in John chapter 9, there's no more discussion. There's no more debate with Jesus. They have made up their minds. If anybody says he's the Christ, he will be excommunicated from the synagogue. Now, this spirit, just like the lies, this spirit of tyranny moves throughout the gospel until you end up at the cross. The Jews were willing to excommunicate anyone that confessed Christ, even Christ himself. The cross was, as it were, an excommunication from humanity. The Jews essentially said, this man is a blasphemer, he cannot live, we are excommunicating you because you are confessing to be the Christ. Now notice how this is church tyranny. I want you to keep this context in mind. These men are officers in the church. These men are elders over this local synagogue. Perhaps the way the Jews did things back then, one of them is the, the local pastor. He would teach the word to the people. These are the officers in the church. And so in this context in world history, what is the one thing they should have theologically understood? Theologically, these officers in the church should have gotten this question right. They can get all the other questions wrong. They can, they can make mistakes on how do you keep the Sabbath. But this one question, 
was the whole job of the Old Testament church, rightly identifying the Christ. Because their job was to say, that's the Christ, follow him. Just like John the Baptist did. That's the Christ, he's the one, follow him. And yet, they want to protect their place. We learn later on, they're afraid that the Romans are going to kick them out of their place and position. They want to maintain their position of honor and authority within the church. And so they use the powers of the church to deny the Lord Jesus Christ in a tyrannical usurpation of their authority. This is a story that's as old as time. This is a story that happens time and time and time again in the church. One example of this is in our own history in the OPC. J. Gresham Machen was a faithful man of God. He was teaching the true gospel, and he noticed that certain missionaries, Pearl Buck and others, were teaching a false gospel on the mission field. He wanted to have this out in the church courts, and the church courts used their power tyrannically to shut him down. And then they excommunicated him and drove him out of the synagogue of the old Presbyterian church. This has happened in other instances. Many of the reformers, Martin Luther, was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church because he preached the true gospel. Why am I going through this history uh, from this example in John chapter 9? We need to recognize that it's highly likely this may and can happen again. The visible church is a temporary institution. The visible church is a real institution. It's something God has established. But the various expressions of the visible church, the OPC, the PCA, the Southern Baptist Convention, the United Methodists, and any other denomination you can think of, those organizations, brands, institutions can fall into this same tyranny just like the synagogues of the Jews, which had been established by Jehovah himself. We have to recognize this. We have to recognize how tyranny operates, what tyranny's goal is, so that we know how to combat it. And as Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So how do we combat tyranny in the church? How do we do it? We've seen here a failure to confront tyranny in the church. How are we then supposed to combat it honestly as Christians trusting in the Lord? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. The Lord Jesus is preparing his ministers, his disciples, to go out and to spread his word. He says in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 10, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach from the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The first way to combat tyranny is to fear God, and as the Puritans said, fear not. Fear God and fear not. Notice how Christ says we are to fear God, what we are to think of God. God is the ultimate executioner. He not only destroys the body, he destroys the soul if he decides to execute you. When God excommunicates, it is final and eternal. And so Christ says, fear this one. Fear the one who should be feared. And secondly, know that this one who should be feared highly values you. And he's not going to let you perish. Look at what he says next. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. You see, what Christ is reminding his disciples of is 
this one who can destroy you body and soul in hell has weighed, measured, and counted every single hair on your head. Now, why would somebody do that? You know, uh, I used to be a coin collector, and perhaps some of you have collected things. When, when you have a precious thing that you really enjoy, that you really love, what do collectors often do? They pay attention to all of the details that people who don't care about this thing have no time for. You listen to a coin collector talk about, well, you see this uh, tiny little mark on this side of the coin. That actually happened in the Mint in Baltimore in 1862 in the month of April. That was the only time that that mark appeared. Everybody else is like, wow, that's very interesting. What Christ is telling us about our Father and his love for you, his people, is that he is an invested collector of saints. And he values you so much that he pays attention to every single detail that nobody else would care about. That's how much the Father loves you. Therefore, do not fear. Therefore, do not fear. Now, notice what Christ then goes on to say. Fear God. God loves you and will preserve you. Verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men... Him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. The way that you oppose tyranny in the church is by proclaiming the truth when you are called to. The way that you oppose tyranny in the church is by confessing Christ. Isn't this a marvelous way of fighting? Because remember that tyranny seeks to cover over the truth of Christ. It wants to deny the truth of Christ. And then Christ tells us, don't fear, proclaim the truth even more. Proclaim Christ where you are. And he who does this, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Now this doesn't often mean what we think it means, though. Christ is not saying, if you confess me, I'll deliver you from the suffering. No, It often means that when you confess Christ, the tyranny will tighten even harder around you. As you continue to proclaim and confess the truth, as we'll learn later on in John chapter 9, the blind man does not give any ground, and he's ultimately excommunicated. Christ himself refused to deny the truth of himself, and it led him to the cross, but the hope is not that you will be delivered from suffering. The hope is that the Father in heaven will reward you and resurrect you just as he did his own son. Brothers and sisters, we need to return to this understanding of suffering for the truth because the time is now. The time is now to confess Christ before men and come hell or high water, we will continue to confess Christ before men, even if we have to die, even if we have to fill up in our own bodies the afflictions that are lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Christ says, confess me before men. That is how you oppose tyranny in the church. He not only says it for all disciples, he also says this for ministers. And this is what we also need desperately today. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians is a glorious book, but we simply notice this. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore... Since we have received this ministry, the ministry of glory, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Brothers and sisters, you may be like me. When times have come where you should have confessed Christ before men and you didn't. Where perhaps fear got the better of you and you did what the blind man's parents did. I've done that before in my life. I've done it in the past. I'm ashamed of it. But I want you to be encouraged by what Paul says here. As we've received this ministry and as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. 
But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What Paul is describing is the way ministers should minister. Paul is describing the way that preachers should preach. This is what you should expect out of me, your minister. This is what you should expect out of any minister that you listen to. This is what you should pray for in the church. Because the only way that tyranny in the church will be opposed is by a clear manifestation of the truth as in the sight of God. There is no political solution. There is no way to, in the civic sphere, vote them out. There is no way in the church sphere to outmaneuver those who are geniuses at maneuvering church politics. There's no way to do it. But the only way to do it is to confess Christ before men. And when they tell you to stop, keep confessing Christ before men. And if we're counted worthy to suffer for Christ, we, along with the apostles, will rejoice that the spirit of grace and of glory abides upon us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the wisdom of your word that you have given us a full revelation showing us all the things that we need to live in this life. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to love the Lord Jesus, to confess him before men, and to suffer with him in our generation. Give us great confidence and boldness to proclaim the truth of Christ, not with hatred in our hearts, but with love for souls and love for Christ, and that in these things Christ might be glorified and your church preserved and purified for all ages. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.